Listeners, welcome back to the Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries Unity in Christ program. If this is your first time listening, my name is Christine Kim, and I am the host of this program. Is there anything more exciting than to imagine what life will be like in heaven? When I feel disappointed or feel burdened by the reality of my life, Oftentimes, I picture the day I will get to live in heaven. I imagine what the scenery will be like when I first enter the gates and how my body will be changed. Jesus said that heaven is a place with no sadness or pain and only filled with happiness. What kind of happiness will it be? Do people eat in heaven? People of all nations will be gathered together. What kind of language will be spoken? My imagination of heaven goes beyond all measures. However, there is something more important than this. As soon as we enter the gates of heaven, we will meet Jesus. When he sees me, what will be the first words he will say to me? Of course, there are certain things I would like to hear from him words of encouragement and compliments, such as, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You've done all that I've asked of you. How overwhelming it is just to imagine Jesus saying those words to me with a great big smile on his face the moment he sees me. What about you? The moment you see Jesus, what kinds of words would you like him to say to you?
There's no one like our God. There's nothing that can stand against you. There's no stronghold you can't break. No life that you can't save. Our God, you never fail. No life you can't save. Strong through every trial, faithful through the night, our God will never fail, our God will never fail. Anchor through the flood, you keep holding on, I know you'll never fail, Jesus you Matthew chapter 25, verse 21. In the parable of the talents, Jesus said these famous words. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Matthew chapter 25 begins with Jesus speaking on the parable of the ten virgins and continues to speak on about the parable of the talents. When Jesus speaks on the parable of the talents, he starts by saying, For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. However, the owner left his slaves with a different amount of talents rather than all being equal amounts. To one he gave five, another two, and another one talent. In verse 19 Jesus said, Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. This means when the master came back, regardless of how much they initially received, they had to settle accounts with him. But why? This is because the talents the slaves received were not theirs, but the master's, which he left with them temporarily. That is why they had an obligation to report to their master how faithfully their talents were used and how much was left. Scripture tells us the one who received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more. 
The slave who received two did the same and gained two more. But what about the slave who received only one talent? He dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money and returned back to the one talent he received. To this slave, the master rebukes him for being lazy and wicked and takes his talent away from him and gives it to the one who had ten. God gives us talents as well. But do we worry about how much we have received? Why did God only give me this much? He gave them this many, but only gave me this many. However, if you read verse 15, it says he gave them all each according to his own ability. That is why regardless of how many talents each slave received, they received according to their own abilities. The two slaves who initially received five and two talents were complimented by their master. Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. It was not important to the master how much profit they earned. God does not want to know how much profit we have earned, but how faithful we have been with what he has given us and how faithfully we use our abilities and talents that were gifted to us by him. There will come a day when we all will stand before Jesus, our master, and report to him how faithfully we use all that he has given us. Our time, money, talents, and even the life that he has given us. Will we be able to stand before him without any embarrassment or shame of how faithful we lived our lives? I ask myself, and to all of our listeners, will we be able to hear from Jesus? Well done, good and faithful slave. I give you my life I give you my trust Jesus You are my God
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Francis Chan of Cornerstone Church. Today's topic is Grace, 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 Part 2, based on Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Francis. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. So now you've got the prophets who are telling the future and Isaiah saying, you know what? All of the sins are going to be placed upon him. He's going to be like a lamb that's led to the slaughter. You know how from the very beginning, how there was always a sacrifice, always a sacrifice, always a sacrifice for our sins. Well, you know what? There's going to come a time when he's going to come and all, all of our iniquities are going to be placed upon him. So you've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, you go all the way through the prophets and then you get to the New Testament and then comes this man called John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist, after all of this talking about this lamb that's going to come, what does John the Baptist say out of his mouth in John chapter 1? He goes, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isn't that nuts? Man, you know, remember from Adam and Eve? Remember from, from Cain and Abel? Remember from the Exodus? Remember Leviticus? Remember what Isaiah said? And there's going to come this one who's going to take away the sins of the world, who's going to be like a lamb that's led the slaughter all these thousands of years. And then look, there he is. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God's story continues. And here he's there and Jesus dies on that cross. And then the writer of Hebrews kind of puts it all together in in Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1, he says the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Do you understand what all that was? All those sacrifices every year, they were reminders. When you'd walk in that temple and you see all that blood, you would be reminded of all of your sin and all of your guilt that needed to be atoned for. He says it was all a shadow, all a picture, until this one was going to come. And then verse 11 of Hebrews 10, it says, Day after day, Every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 18, and where these have been forgiven, there's no longer any sacrifice for sin. He says, don't you understand? This was a picture from the beginning of time. Those sacrifices of the blood of the bulls and the goats, it was never about the blood and the goats of the goats really taking away your sin. It was all a picture of the reality that was going to come. You were putting your faith in something that's going to happen and then it happened. He goes, and that's why we don't sacrifice anymore. 
You don't need a sacrifice anymore. The perfect sacrifice was made. This was the picture of Christ. And then you go all the way to the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation says that at the end, you're going to see the throne. And on that throne, there's going to be one that looks like a lamb that has been slain. And what do we worship? We say, worthy is the lamb. And we sing the song forever and ever and ever. Forever we'll be talking about the grace of God. And what he did on that cross and the picture that he gave to the world all the way from the beginning. And here's Revelation just saying, and that's what it's going to be about forever. See, the book of Revelation, end times, is not going to be about Francis getting to heaven and singing songs about himself. It's not about me going, look what I did when I was on the earth. You know, and just, hey, let's just sing songs about what I did. Let's talk about what you did and how you pulled it off and all the good things you did to get there. No, what are we going to sing about? The grace of God, the blood of the Lamb. We're going to say, God, you had that plan from beginning. See, I, I was so mixed up growing up. I never understood this. I never put it all together. I always thought, okay, Old Testament... Got to obey a bunch of rules. No one did it. So God goes, oh, what do I do now? Okay, I'll send my son. You know, like it was an afterthought. Like, okay, now comes Jesus. And it's like, no. It's always been about the substitutionary sacrifice that mankind has needed from the beginning because we were never able to obey the law. That's why Paul says there in Galatians, again, Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, he says, by observing the law, No one will be justified. No one's going to be justified by observing the law. You're not going to make it. You're not going to be pronounced not guilty because you lived such a good life and you didn't break these commands. Everyone needs justification. Romans 3.20 says it the same thing. It says, therefore, no one, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. He goes, you know what the law actually does? The law doesn't save you. You don't get to look at these commands and these rules and go, wow, look, I did them all. Because the truth is, is we've broken them. So no one's going to be declared righteous because they, they obeyed them all. He goes, what the law does is the law makes us conscious of sin. See, when you read the commands, every time you read a command, it makes you feel guilty because you knew you, you know you've broken it. It makes you conscious, aware of your sin. And the Bible says, even if you never read the Bible, the Bible says that his law was written in your heart. That's why you've always known there was a right and wrong. Growing up, even if you didn't go to church or no one told you right from wrong, there were certain things you'd see and you'd just go, that is not right. Right? That can't be right. That grates against everything that's in me. I, I, I can't. I, that's wrong. There's a right and wrong. And so this whole relativism that the world's trying to teach that there is no right or wrong, that doesn't make sense to you. It can't. You know there's right and wrong. You know there's good and evil. It's written in your hearts. And the law just makes us even more conscious of the things that we've been guilty of. There have t- been times in your life when you did something And you knew it was wrong and you just felt this sick feeling about yourself. We've all done it. That's guilt. Why? Because we're conscious of our guilt. We're conscious of our sins. We have this conscience. And that's why at every funeral, every funeral I've done, done many, many funerals, every funeral inevitably, it doesn't matter how wicked the person was, someone inevitably will say, But he had a good heart. 
but she had a good heart. There was a, a kid in Finland who went in and shot, you know, seven of his friends, killed him, killed himself. And what do they always say afterwards? What do the parents say? What do their friends say? I don't understand. He was a good person. And at every funeral, you'll, you'll hear those words from someone. I, I bet you it was said at Hitler's funeral. Someone says, yeah, but he was a good man and he had a good heart. He didn't mean to do this. He didn't mean to sin. Why? Because, yeah, you know, there's some truth to that, that in all of us we know there's a good and evil, and there is some of us, you know, there is that guilt when we do what's wrong, and we don't really want to do it, but the issue is not what you want. The issue is, is you blew it. It doesn't matter how badly you wanted to do what was right. The fact is, is that you didn't. And, and no one can, can come before the judge and go, well, I didn't really want to kill him. Well, I, I don't care. The fact is, is that you did. And so the fact is, is you're not going to be pronounced righteous. And so don't hide behind this idea of because I desire good things and I think good thoughts every once in a while, that that makes you righteous. No, until you pull it off. And you actually do pull off all of the commands and you do it without error. Then you're righteous. Otherwise, you are guilty and you need to be justified. You need somehow to gain justification. And what Paul says is, you're not going to do that by obeying the law. You don't get declared not guilty because you obey the law. You you get declared not guilty by faith in Jesus Christ, by the grace of God, by accepting what someone else did for you. It's always been that way. It's been that way from the beginning of time. That you've always needed a sacrifice. You've always needed someone to take the penalty. See, but most people don't want that. People who have guilt, which is everyone, they seek to justify themselves. You know, you ever ever hear that expression? Nah, you're just trying to justify your actions. Why? Because we all want justification. We all need justification. So how do we justify? We go, we blame Well, I'm a good person. The only reason why I end up this way is because of my parents. I mean, my heart is good. It's my parents that screwed me up. It's society that screwed me up. It's growing up in Southern California. It's growing up in America. It's the Republicans. It's the Democrats. It's whatever. It's this. It's that. I mean, well, I've got some issues, you know, internally that you can't even understand. And that's my problem. So you justify by blaming others or blaming circumstances or blaming something. So, cause there's no way you would ever do anything bad on your own. So you gotta justify it somehow. Or you can justify it by go, yeah, yeah, well I did some of those things, but those really aren't that bad. And look at all the good things that I've done. Look at all the great things that I've done. And you try to justify yourself by saying, well, but I've done more good than bad. And let me just ask you, does that make sense? Would that make sense to you if you're watching a hearing, a court hearing, and and the guy's pleading his case, yeah, I did this, yeah, I did that, but here's a bunch of good stuff I did, and does it really make sense for you, the judge, to go, okay, then you're not guilty? After you showed me, you're like, I was going to pronounce you guilty because I saw you broke these laws, but then when you told me all the good things you did, I thought, okay, no, you're not guilty. (laughs) That really makes sense to you? 
And yet we'll try to justify ourselves that way. We'll try to justify ourselves by blaming others. Try to justify ourselves by doing good works. And the Bible says you're never going to justify yourself that way. There's one way for justification. This is the way it's always been. And that's been by the blood. By the grace of Jesus Christ. By the grace of God. God seeing, look, those fig leaves, that's not covering you. Let me cover you. The the produce and all the work, that's not going to cover your sin. Let the blood cover. You're working and everything else, it's not going to cover. Just put the blood over your doorpost. The blood will cover. The day of atonement, the day of covering, is not a day of works. It's a day of blood. That's why Isaiah said, look, we've always needed this and someone's going to come. And that's why John the Baptist goes... There he is. And that's why the writer of Hebrews goes, see, it happened. And that's why for all of eternity, we're going to be going, wow, thank you, thank you, thank you for the blood, the blood, the blood. That was the only thing that could justify me because I couldn't justify myself. I needed justification by faith through grace, grace through faith. Christ sets us free from that guilt. See, you've tried to get rid of your guilt by doing good things. But you still remember those things of the past that you did. It didn't wipe away that guilt, did it? Because it's only by the grace of God, it's only by the blood of Christ that you'll be set free from your guilt and from the punishment of your guilt. And that's why Paul continues, in, in, uh, and I'll, I'll wrap it up here, Galatians 2, verse 17. He says, if... While we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners. Does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. For through the law, listen to this phrase, I died to the law. So that, key phrase, so that, I died to the law so that I might live for God. He says, I died to the law so that I could live for God. Okay, okay, what does this mean? I died to the law. Paul says, I died to that whole system that the Pharisees made up and other people were believing. This, this, this system of laws where if I do this, 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 if, you know, I'll get circumcised on this day, I won't eat these foods, I'll do that, I'll do that. Maybe if I do all of that, I'll gain right. He goes, I had to die to that whole system of being good enough. I had to die to this religion of if I just follow these steps, I'll be okay in the sight of God. He goes, I had to die to that whole notion so that I could actually live a life that was pleasing to God. See, if you are still stuck here thinking that you are doing something or there's some good that you're going to do and you're going to earn God's favor, Paul says you're never going to earn it. Because that's arrogant. That's self-centered. You're thinking you can do it yourself, that you don't need God's help. He goes, God's never going to be pleased with that. He goes, as long as I kept trying, I would never live for God. But once I died to that whole notion... Once I let my pride down and say, okay, I can't justify what I did. I can't justify my actions. Once I died to this whole protection, proud, I'm a good person thing, then suddenly God could work with me. And then suddenly I could start living to please God. And that's why he says in that that verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. 
See that old me, just like Jesus died on that cross? That was me up there. That old me was nailed to the cross. I've been crucified with Christ. And so it's no longer I who live, but now Christ lives in me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and delivered himself up for me. In other words, right now, this is no longer Francis Chan. Francis Chan died. The old me. The old me that wanted to do all these good things but kept screwing up, screwing up, screwing up, screwing up. Feeling more and more and more guilty. You're trying to hide it. You're trying to justify it. It's like, I am done with that. Okay, I gave up. I couldn't justify myself. I couldn't justify my actions. That old me died. He was buried with Christ. And now this new me, because that happened and because I gave up, God puts his spirit in me. And so now this new me, it's, it's like it, it, everything's different now. It's no longer me, the powerless me, failure me living, but now Christ lives through me. And the life that I live now is not this life of me, me, me doing all this stuff, but it's Christ walking through me. Christ working through me. It's His Spirit coming into me and actually guiding my actions. And now suddenly I'm a new person and I'm putting to death the deeds of the flesh that I used to be powerless over. See, don't you understand? That was the whole picture of baptism. The whole picture of baptism was a person, the Bible says you've been buried with Christ through baptism. The old you of all this, oh, I'm going to do it, I'm going to be so good. Ah, forget it. I'm going to die. And when I rise, just like Jesus died on that cross, when he rose, he goes, it's the same picture of me rising again to a new life with God's spirit in me now. And now I've got God's spirit in me and it's no longer the old Francis Chan just walking in the flesh trying to pull it off. Now I've got the spirit of the living God in me. And as I walk and step with the Spirit, it's like I'm not even living anymore. It's like Christ living through me because the old me could never get rid of the sin. This old me was never full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. You know, that was not me. I could never pull it off. But now it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And that's why Paul closes it by saying, I don't set aside the grace of Christ. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Have you ever come to a point like that in your life? Did that ever happen? Is that your story? Did you ever get to a point where you just said, okay, I admit I'm guilty. I can't justify what I've done in my life. And I know when I stand before the judge, he's not going to pronounce me innocent, justified, not guilty. No matter how many good works I do, it just doesn't work that way. I know it doesn't work that way. I need what Jesus did on that cross for me. I need his sacrifice. I need his spirit to come into me so that I finally can live the way that he wants me to. And I finally can become more and more like him every day. With the hand
Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. You can easily play this week's or past week's program, or even download them on your device in just a few minutes. Search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. Following is a program titled "The Lord Is My Shepherd," where we learn about our Lord, who is our Shepherd, through Psalm chapter twenty-three. The Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. I just read Psalm twenty-three, verses one through five. As we reread these verses and reflect upon what we've been learning thus far, the content has begun to. Come vividly to life for us. Within these verses, we see the tender touches of God, our good Shepherd. Today, I'd like us to consider the phrase, "You have anointed my head with oil; my cup overflows." From the latter part of verse five, W. Philip Keller, the author of *A Shepherd*, looks at Psalm twenty-three, advises us. To read Psalm 23 while thinking about how this psalm lists important events of a sheep's life, one by one, through the course of a year. We have been describing what these events might be while reading through Psalm 23 since the beginning of the series. In doing so, for example, we saw in verse three how the shepherd took his flock that was living in the green pastures around his house. From fall to spring, to the highlands to spend the summer and fall season. Beginning in verse four, we also saw how 
the shepherd had to walk through the valley of the shadow of death and how the shepherd is able to safely lead and protect the flock, leading the sheep to arrive at the green pastures in the highlands to spend the summer and fall. We envisioned all things abundant and well prepared in this highland pasture, arrived at only through hardship. Next, we anticipate the ensuing summer and fall seasons there that will offer the best circumstance for the sheep to fatten up and become healthy. You could call it their golden age in the year. It would be great if only peaceful times would follow them. Unfortunately, there is a fly in the ointment, so to speak, to bother the sheep in these highland pastures. Following the spring, as the summer season begins, the season of pests also begins. Along with the hot summer weather, pests start appearing. Maybe you have experienced being bothered by pests, such as flies, while eating with the windows open or when you were having a meal outside. Isn't it really annoying when that happens? There have been a lot of instances where I couldn't peacefully enjoy a meal because I was trying to shoo away flies that were trying to land on my food. The pests that afflict the sheep don't just stop at bothering the sheep so that they're unable to eat their food in peace. No, these are seriously problematic beings that bring disease to the flock and can even kill the sheep. There are many types of pests that harm the sheep, including warble flies, horse flies, heel flies, sheep flies, deer flies, aphids, mosquitoes, crane flies, and numerous other varieties we don't even know about. The attack of these pests can easily transform this golden age of summer into a season of suffering. The worst of the pests that afflict the sheep is the sheep-bot fly. These small flies bother the sheep by flying in front of his face, searching for an opportunity to lay their eggs on the moist and sticky mucous membranes of the sheep's nose. If the sheep-bot flies succeed in laying their eggs in the sheep's nose, the eggs then mature into small larvae within a few days, and the larvae begin to move through the nostrils of the sheep to the head and eventually the skin to live there. During this process, the larvae produce severe irritations for the sheep and eventually induce malignant inflammations in the sheep. These infestations subject the sheep to an unbearable amount of pain. To seek relief, the sheep often hit their heads on a tree or a rock and sometimes rub their heads against the ground while rolling around in pain. The sheep-bot flies are further dangerous because if the sheep infected by the larvae are not treated promptly, they could become blind. So, when the sheep-bot fly starts to hover around the flock, the sheep become gripped in fear and start to run and jump around, desperately trying to avoid the flies and bringing 
great chaos among the flock. But there is a way to prevent this disaster. Do you know what it is? It is oil. The shepherd makes a pest-repellent oil by mixing flaxseed oil, sulfur, and tar, which is then rubbed on the nose and head of the sheep. It is observed that the sheep-bot flies do not approach sheep that have this oil applied on their noses and heads. Because these sheep flies cannot approach the sheep anymore, the turmoil among the flock naturally disappears as well. David, who we know was a shepherd, knew well of the role and importance of this oil. The relationship of the sheep to pests and oil has obvious parallels to our spiritual lives. When some of our bigger problems have been resolved and we begin to live as children of God, we start to think that we will live peacefully in the Lord. Then little pesky problems often seem to surface. Although they may not be big issues, these problems always hover around us, desiring to lay an egg of sin or evil in our souls, hatred toward our brothers, troubles with others, hurt received from others, disappointment with ourselves, struggling with raising kids, economic difficulties, red flags in our health, conflict with one's spouse, when these pest-like problems linger around us, we are in danger of the eggs of desire for evil and sin being laid within us. If these eggs are allowed to grow unchecked, it can cause blindness to our spiritual eyes and lead us to unbearable pain. How can we protect against the potential effects of these troubles by the anointing of the Holy Spirit. If the fullness of the anointing of the Holy Spirit is on our head and our soul every day, we need never suffer spiritual ruin from pest-like problems because we have the peace of God given to us by the Holy Spirit in any situation when we acknowledge the complete sovereignty of God in all things. That is why we should ask and pray for the fullness of the Holy Spirit within us every day. Philip Keller, the writer of A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, mentioned another common disease among sheep in his book. It is called scabies. Scabies is a disease brought by a mite a microscopically small insect, while other types of pests must directly and individually lay their eggs on the sheep for them to be afflicted, scabies is very contagious, where if one sheep becomes attacked by a mite, the disease could spread to the entire flock in a short period of time. The reason for this is that the mites live primarily in the foreheads of the sheep and the sheep often rub their foreheads with one another to communicate with one another. Therefore, the mites are easily transported from one sheep to another. Every time the sheep 
try to communicate with one another. Philip Keller explains that the treatment for scabies is also with the use of oil. And he makes the analogy between scabies-afflicted sheep and we Christians, saying, when Christians rub their heads with people who don't have Christ's heart, we become infected with non-Christian thoughts. Younger people who lack critical thinking and have delicate feelings could get infected through television, radio, newspapers or magazines, and even from information handed to them by their peers. You cannot prevent infection when there has been contact. Keller then advises us. That is why, as Philippians 4.8 instructs us, we should always think about and meditate on whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, and anything worthy of praise. I completely agree with him. When are the times we are most susceptible to sin, having an evil heart, or being discouraged in our Christian life? Probably when we are not fully living and abiding in the Lord. That is why we should always ask for and seek the fullness of the Holy Spirit. This is not something that happens automatically. The Holy Spirit does not come upon us, is not made fully manifest in us when we are being idle. We must seek to dwell upon the right, honorable, pure, lovely things that please the Lord. As Philippians 4.8 says, in order to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit living within us, we must continuously seek to maintain an intimate relationship with Him. God, who is our shepherd, wants to anoint our heads today with the oil of the Holy Spirit. Are you receiving it? Can you confess, as David confessed, that God has anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows? I pray that the confession of David will also be our confession. Thank you for listening. Join me again next week as we continue with The Lord is My Shepherd.
We should not forget all that we have received from God, our ultimate resource. We need to remember that everything we have ever received from Him was only left for us to use faithfully. Whether it is our time, money, and or talents, we need to faithfully utilize everything in a way which pleases Him. We cannot say that anything we have is ours. Have we forgotten that everything we have is not ours? Are we using it for our own pleasures and desires? If we have been, what will Jesus say to us when we meet Him? Instead of hearing Him say, Well done, my good and faithful slave, it is scary to think that He might tell us we are instead wicked and lazy. Jesus said, Therefore take away that talent from Him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and ye will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, and even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. These are the scriptures of Matthew chapter 25, verse 28 through 30. I hope that we may all realize and remember that one day we will stand before Jesus and report to him of how our lives have been lived. I pray that we may always have Jesus in our hearts in whatever action we may take, that we may not waste what He has given us, but live out each and every moment faithfully for His glory. We will now wrap up our Unity in Christ message for today. Thank you for listening as it has been my pleasure. I hope to see you this time again next week, and God bless. To soften my heart and break me apart, I need you to open my eyes and see that you're shaping my I need